Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host, Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia. How are you? Hi, Carrie. I am soggy because I got rained on earlier. The weather, there yeah, it is. I can't help it. It's really like <laughs> happening. This kind of slide towards winter is happening. I got my heavy uh, boots out for the first time today and I wore a big scarf, which always makes me think of, have you seen the extraordinary photograph of Lenny Kravitz? Like he's wearing this scarf that yes. apparently sent the internet into mayhem. I sent that to somebody the other day. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Like, it's like the perfect <laughs> seasonal image. It's Lenny in a really sexy all brown outfit with the most enormous brown scarf you've ever seen in your life. And the question is, is it a scarf, Lenny, or is it a blanket? (laughs) And it's a question I ask myself often when I wrap myself in this very large scarf that I have, which I think really is genuinely more of a blanket. So One of the best presents I've ever been given is a large blanket scarf that was cashmere. Um, and it's just it was like heaven pure filth carry yeah and then I lost it somewhere as I do with all of my clothing (laughs) but I know it's horrible but it was great while it lasted my heart (laughs) wow how are you still mourning that scarf I hope yes yeah just in mourning always (laughs) (laughs) it's a busy time of year in the publishing calendar I think I said this last time but we're getting to the end of it I'm about to go to the Frankfurt book fair which hot ticket yeah it's very hot (laughs) ticket in a very weird city where we sit at tables and pitch books to each other and it's not very glamorous I'm gonna say that's an extremely niche experience yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> very niche content here, Carrie Plitt. It, very niche. It, I, I'm letting people into the world of the literary agent. If you're interested <laughs> in what it's like, you sit at tables in Frankfurt with no windows and you talk to people about books from nine to five for three days straight. And sometimes it's fun and sometimes it's soul destroying. Yeah, I so, would say that sounds like purgatory. <laughs> No, it is fun. There's something fun about it. I love meeting editors from other countries. But anyway. Yeah, I'm okay. I'm manic, maybe, as you can probably tell. (laughs) Um, But anyway, today on the show, we are totally delighted to welcome the author Kay Patrick, who is here to talk about their debut novel, Mrs. S. Set at an elite English all-girls boarding school, Mrs. S features a young Australian who arrives to take up the position of matron. Soon they meet the beguiling headmaster's wife, Mrs. S, and what begins as yearning blooms into a life-changing affair. Did you like my copy there? I loved it. So it's a sensual portrait of queer desire and a really beautiful examination of how thirst and sex can transform us. So for a theme today, we wanted to explore desire more generally in literature. We'll be thinking about what the best writing about desire does, the portraits of desire we most like to read and want more of, and even why reading itself is a form of desire. But before we get started, can you tell our listeners a little more about Kay Octavia? I sure can. Kay Patrick is a writer based in Scotland. In 2023, they were named an Observer Best Debut Novelist and were selected as one of Granta's Best of Young British Novelists. They were runner-up for the Ivan Juritz Prize and the Laura Kinsella Fellowship and were shortlisted for the White Review Short Story Prize. Their poetry has appeared in Poetry Review and Five Dials and were shortlisted for the White Review Poets Prize in 2021. Mrs. S is their debut novel. Also, quick reminder that we are on Patreon. If you would like to support the work that we do and get extra content, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash lit friction and get monthly exclusive minisodes as well as the chance to suggest topics for us to wang on about. Our latest Patreon was a celebration of a topic we've been teasing for years now. Our thoughts on 
the weather scintillating. Don't miss it. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> a list of all the books we recommended today is on bookshop.org. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Kay Patrick, our discussion of desire in literature, and finally, our usual reading recommendations. So get trapped in our thirst for the next hour of literary friction. Patrick, thank you so much for being here with us today on Literary Friction. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So we've asked you to start with a reading from Mrs. S. Do you mind setting it up for us? No, of course not. So the scene that I'll read is part of a kind of extended moment where the protagonist and Mrs. S go swimming together. And I suppose it's the first intimate moment they share together. And it's probably the first time they're alone in the book. So it has some significance. We come out of the trees and stagger further down. The slope is steeper now. A sound of water increases. She crouches, picks a clover, and bites behind its head. She doesn't offer or ask me to do the same. Instead, the flavour is announced, sweet, something like honey. Wonderful, she confirms. Her personalities catch like loose thread on a branch. The old-fashioned headmaster's wife and this person, setting her teeth to a stem's nape, stood tall in her pink shorts. Almost there. Scree is loose under my feet. Water appears. A clear river. Heather makes soft mounds. She whips through the bracken, points to a distant fell, and suggests climbing it, not today, but one day. I am hopeful. We drop down onto a track. There is nothing but the rhythm of our shoes on the dusty surface, birdsong, breath, focused in the heat. I want to ask her how she, how they, found this place, but the quiet is too lovely. Familiarity, a new familiarity, this time bodily. Little clutches of fabric, the swipe of our thighs. Well, this is it. At first I can't see anything, only slabs of grey stone. She moves towards a copse of only five or six trees, slender silver bark, green leaves. I watch her first, standing at an edge, peering down, pleased. It needed to be as good as she remembered. Without waiting for me, she removes her white shirt, each button a piece of my own spine undone. Her swimming costume is an athlete's, black, streamlined. I am surprised by her strength. She adjusts the fit, a finger slid underneath the short straps, then the place where the suit meets her hips. She catches me watching her. I blush. She calls to me. My anxiety has its own heartbeat. Desperate for the cool across my sticky face, I wear a sleeveless t-shirt, the binder hidden underneath. Underpants, too. The t-shirt's hem past my hips, stopping mid-thigh. You'll go in wearing that? Yeah, no costume. I didn't bring one with me. I never thought it would be warm enough to swim. Well, little did you know. She accepts my lie. My costume balled up in my underwear drawer. I no longer know how to wear it. I reach her at the edge. She has waited for my reaction. Below is a large waterfall, a pool eroded beneath it. Bigger than I imagined, enough to spend time swimming to either side. Jeweled surface, a fish, brown trout, she explains, is visible deep on the stony bed. It's beautiful. It is. She clambers down and dives, muscle, water, her back is a swimmer's back, all arch and grace. For a moment I can't move. She doesn't hurry me, treads water, calm. I grip the edge of my toes, promise myself I'll jump at the count of five but only manage on ten. Hopping forward, I can't make the same shape as her. Rush of rock at my back, relief of vanishing beneath the bright surface, t-shirt ballooning around me. 
I open my mouth to drink to taste the cold, reappear to her face a few feet from mine. She smiles. Well, there you are. We haul up to the waterfall, a large flat rock partially submerged, able to be clambered onto. Matching flecks of our forearms, she admires my brawn, I pretend not to hear. We sit side by side underneath. She draws up her legs, the crease at her knee. Here she does not know, does not mind what she gives away. Water hammering our heads, necks. Without warning, she slips back in, completes a few lengths at speed, front crawl. I float. If I could choose a different chest, I would choose this water. If I could choose a different body, I would choose this water. I say the last line aloud, river slipping on my tongue. What? She swims towards me, slowly, breaststroke now. What did you say? Nothing. But of course, nothing. She rolls her eyes. I roll mine back. Thank you for that reading. I think it's a great example of how alive this book is to bodies and to the world and to the natural world and to the way things feel and the kind of sensuality of everything around us. And I want to talk more about that. But first, I want to ask you about the genesis of this book. Mm-hmm. I mean, what what made you think about writing it? How did it come to you? Oh, God. I think this line has become slightly infamous now in that I only really had one impure impulse, and that was just to write a horny lesbian novel. <laughs> and <laughs> I said it once, and that's that phrasing has now followed me everywhere. But it's true. I mean, it remains true that I, I wrote it during lockdown, and I think... I wanted to give a bit of a gift to myself. So I just set out for something that I'd find really gratifying. Um, And of course, once I started writing it, the intricacies and complexities of queer desire meant that it couldn't be quite so straightforward, not as straightforward, in inverted commas, as I thought it would be. But yeah, it it started from a place of pleasure, basically. Yeah, there's so much, there's so much pleasure in it, in the use of language. And of course, you're a poet as well. And I feel like I felt the poet's hand and the language. And I think in that passage, you really get a sense of that as well. The words feel very, very carefully placed and carefully chosen. And I wondered, like, how do you see this prose in relation to your poetry practice? Yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting question. I think it's funny to read it aloud. I think when I was writing it, I read the text aloud to myself all the time, just because rhythm, when you're writing about the body, is so crucial. To how the text functions and I think I can feel the poetry the most when I read it aloud because it's breathless it sort of feels like it's on a constant collision course which is very similar to how I put poetry together as well but the actual practice of writing it felt very different I think some people some reviewers some critics have called it like a long prose poem which to me always feels those two things feel very different in my practice like my fiction and my prose poetry but I'm still trying to figure out why that is if it's just some sort of like rebellious impulse where I don't want to admit like how similar it is to my poetic practice as well but I think there must be something in the in the noticing I suppose that comes across in both I think for this the style the way that it emerged is basically the book started with writing the sex scene so I even before I had a plot like proper characters anything I had to practice writing these sex scenes because I knew that if I didn't have good sex writing then basically I didn't have a book um, so <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. yeah so I spent a lot of time probably the longest amount of time on getting that right and I had to develop a style that could contain the queer body in a way that made sense to me and I I think maybe the poetic style also has branched out from that because I needed this very kind of short sharp staccato that let the body stay really close to language. That's so fascinating that you wrote 
the sex first. And although I'm not surprised to hear it. And I wonder <laughs> if you can talk a little bit more about how you found the sex, how you found the sex that you wanted to write and what was important to you about mm. what you were showing. How I found the sex, the things I never thought I'd be asked. <laughs> <laughs> it's good though. It's funny. It's funny. I, I found the sex through other writers. I think I'm somebody that needs a lot of input when I'm writing. I know other people need to be alone with their work, but I read like I, I read so much when I'm writing. And for the sex writing, the first thing I did was by hand copy out sections from other people's work like Garth Greenwell um, and Cleanness, Robert Glock, Marjorie Kemp. Copied it up by hand. Wow. Yeah. I kind of wanted to break apart how, especially things like rhythm that were so essential and interiority as well, break apart how other writers were doing it to see what worked. And again, like this is all, it's funny to think about this happening during lockdown, a time when desire started to function differently, touch started to function differently, even like how those things affected place began to function differently as well. Um, so yeah, I spent a lot of time on my own, by, like in a notebook, just writing out and looking at sentences, usually sentence by sentence, sometimes a full passage to see what it was that worked for me. It's, I mean, I recommend to other people all the time that ask me for writing advice. Not that I feel like I'm very qualified to give it, but it's, yeah, I, that's where it started. And then I, from there, put that notebook away and then started by hand again, all by hand to begin with, testing out what would work for me. And after a while of studying it so much, I think, I don't know, especially when you're a queer writer, it feels like you're bumping up against this limit of language all the time. And in sex writing, it feels like a real opportunity to move past that because sex is such a strange and wonderful and it's so many different things all at once and writing about it gives you a chance to learn something new about language. I, at least that's what my experience of it was. So I was able to have fun with it and be playful and then the tone for the rest of the book had to stick. And also listening to you describe writing it during lockdown, the setting for this book is a girls' boarding school, which is its mm -hmm. own kind of closed set and boarding schools especially in literature, they have this wild timelessness to them because of all these kind of ancient traditions and the fact that they are designed to preserve a particular kind of social milieu, I guess, right, that that exists in mm. a weirdly timeless way and all those traditions and everything. And especially interesting to think of that, knowing that the writing began with the sex, because also like schools are mm. very like, they're places that regulate desire, aren't they, yeah. for the students and everything like that. When did the idea of the boarding school come in and what interested you about that setup? It came in straight away because I one of the first sex scenes that I wrote just for pure fun was the one in the church. Oh, great. <laughs> so I was like, how? And I, I knew that I needed, like exactly like you say, I knew I needed this timeless a setting that allowed me to be timeless as well. I tried committing certain kinds of detail to the text and it didn't work. Um, it slowed down the physicality of the language that I had in place if I brought in too many external details. So I need this kind of claustrophobic environment that allowed the body to come first. And it's funny, like you say, in a boarding school, of course, desire is very regulated, but also it's like very much at the forefront of everything that takes place because it's the the stage that all the girls are at in the book and they're learning about it and being required to be a certain kind of sexual being when they leave the school, but they're not allowed to have that take place within the school. They're, they're very interesting places for all of that to unfold. But they're also body first, and I think that was essential to the text too. And it's a place of the gaze as well. There's a whole bunch of looking that happens at 
any school, but especially a boarding school when there's no break, there's no respite from it either. Um, and yeah, it allowed me to put a church in it, which was really convenient for this church sex scene that I'd written, <laughs> basically. <laughs> so you said you wanted to write a horny lesbian novel. Let's talk about the horny lesbians that you set up <laughs> in this novel. And first, I want to talk about the protagonist, who is never named. She's very much an outsider in the school. She's someone who really is still figuring out who she is and her relationship to her own body, her relationship to masculinity. What appealed to you about this character who still feels in some ways on the cusp of becoming herself? Yeah, it's funny. It's funny when you think about a character as appealing to me as the author. And I try and think about when that began. But so I had this idea of, I had my list of needs as the author. And I find it really interesting how those needs then get transformed into personhood on the page. And my needs were, <laughs> much like having a church for the sex scene, my needs were somebody who had come into themselves in a way that felt significant in terms of their sexuality, but had this opening, had this gap where a bit of light was getting in. And I wanted to really write into that gap. And the protagonist and how they came about was a way to examine that like the light of identity I guess that's what we're talking about when we talk about masculinity and also I needed somebody who didn't have to offer a conclusion at the end of the book I think I wanted something that was really open-ended as you say they're nameless and I think that's partially for that reason so that there's a sense of futurity about the novel they're able to yeah I wanted to have a protagonist that could leave the page at the end I don't know if that sounds maybe that sounds really cheesy no um, no. no I love it it was wonderful to read a story from the perspective of a butch character, which mm -hmm. still feels too rare in fiction. And I, I wonder if you were thinking about that as you were writing about the idea of butch um, and, and what it means. Yeah, a bit. I, I think um, one thing that I was aware of when I was writing and that I'm, is still important to me now is that, of course, like there is a butch canon out there it, it's not well known but if you look at things like pulp fiction or even like the work of people like leslie feinberg there's definitely a legacy in place and i i didn't want to feel like the first person that was doing it but i feel like i'm i've had a real an amazing opportunity thanks to all the people amazing people that i work with that like believed in the book but i still yeah i i hope that one lots of other which books get written, obviously, always hoping that, but that also people are able to go back and have a look at what was already in existence. Because I hope this book is kind of in conversation with those as well. And so they were, yeah, definitely, they were in mind while I was writing. And I think, I think it felt important to be able to have a book that was able to speak to the identity, I guess, I'll have to use that word, without having to justify it on the page. I think that's one of the massive challenges of language as it exists now is that it can be really hard to find the right phrasing for queerness without feeling like you're explaining it somehow and if you're explaining it then it feels like you're having to justify its existence on the page if that makes sense I don't know yeah it does but also I wonder if having the sort of central thrust of the book being desire is one of the things that helps that because desire is universally understood right it's like mm -hmm. those feelings of lust and of wanting, but also one of the things that I really loved about the book is that in a way it's as if the protagonist's desire is, it's like the route to finding out who they are, like understanding themselves. And I wonder if you, do you consider desire that kind of a, like a self-making force, if that makes sense? Well, I like that. Yeah. I, a self-making force for sure. I mean, it's a nightmarish way to make the self, but we all do it. <laughs> like, I think it's a, 
one of the things that makes being alive in the world the most fascinating and most horrible, I guess. There's a lot of mimicry that goes on. And I found that, I definitely found that interesting to write through, like how we also reinvent when we face the object of desire. I think it was also interesting to think about desire as a force that happens as such a fascinating thing. And I think it feels like something you're creating from within, right? It feels like this very true, very unique thing, but really it's a, a force that happens from the outside in. And a few much smarter people have written about this. Lauren Ballant writes about it in Desire Love and Anne Carson writes a lot about it in Eros a Bittersweet. And she translates one of Sappho's fragments in the very beginning, which has this beautiful line in it that it ends in creature stealing up, which I think is such an amazing way of thinking mm. through desire. But she also talks about Sappho's tenses, right? So that like the whole fragment is written in this very immediate present tense because that's the tense that can best hold desire. And it's this thing, and it's this impact, it's this constant impact on the body and the self. It's like very ongoing. We've actually made desire the theme of our show today, partially oh. because it feels like such an important part of this book. And maybe you could talk more about like on a sentence level, what were you thinking about when you were writing Desire? Because it is, it's tied up with sex, but it is different from the actual sex scenes, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. So Desire on a line level, it's multifaceted, right? I think that's why Desire helps make the self because it's like the ultimate spin-off. You can be in a desirous state or a desiring state. And I think when I was talking about the protagonist being cracked open to the world, I think desire can do that too, right? Like it also lets a lot in. You become very vulnerable in desire. Mm. And I think on a line level, that became important to the text because I wanted to have this nonstop noticing, this nonstop looking. Some people have found the book exhausting for this very reason, but I, the tense that I chose, this tense of desire, meant that you... It is relentless. There isn't a second, there isn't really a minute that goes by that something isn't being brought into a scene. In terms of writing it, I couldn't just have someone walk into the room. I had to have the hand on the door handle. I had to have a noise of the door. I had to have the foot over the threshold. You know, it's like this, like, oh, it's relentless. And that's because the body had to come first. And I, I think that's what felt truest to me on the line when writing about desire is it's, it becomes very body first. It's, of course, it's a physical thing. And that's before it has anything to do with sex. That's just the way that you are in a room. Um, I think that kind of noticing also feels very queer, like I'm hugely in debt to other queer writers with that because that's how you, the world is taken in constantly, right? Like you're reading a room nonstop, not just for sexuality, but also for safety, for, I think, especially with kind of the trans non-binary body as well, that kind of looking is like, it takes a toll and it's a direct way that language takes a toll on the body as well, because you're constantly involved in it. <laughs> right. So the object of the protagonist's desire is Mrs. S, the headmaster's wife. She's a wonderful creation. She wears beautiful, perfectly ironed clothes and jewelry, and she's this beneficent presence amongst the girls. How did she come to you, and why did you think of this as the person that the protagonist would fixate upon? The answer to the question is so embarrassing. I think because <laughs> of how I, I wrote the book, like I said, it's interesting for me to think about. I do wonder sometimes that if we got together all the books that were written during lockdown that aren't directly about lockdown, like how the conditions of lockdown affected the novel, like how it affected fiction. I think because it was just me alone in a room, I did. <laughs> I just had in mind, I was like, because the novel was this 
ongoing act of gratification for me. I was like, who would you want in this role? So I just basically thought about Gillian Anderson for like three months. <laughs> that is so Oh my God, That's probably going to bloody follow me around as well. But I, yeah, so I was just like, and just thinking about Gillian in a really nice cashmere jumper. Who, who wouldn't want to do that? But Well, true. Do you know what I... In my mind's eye, she was Kate Blanchett, so not a million miles away. Yeah. Uh-huh. Also works, though. Totally works. Yeah, definitely works. Yeah. And, and I think, again, like, I go back to that. When I think about Mrs. S, and definitely when I had the first draft of the book, the thing I had to really work on and go back and look at was Mrs. S, who I think I'd underwritten. But yes, yeah, so I had to go back on and work on her uh, and learn her a bit better and realize that, yeah, that she's unknowable in her own way and that's also that unknowability is also part of the attraction I think again it goes back to this idea that I wrote into these fantasies that I had when I was 13 and in my mind I had lots of affairs with lots of headmasters wives and French teachers and English teachers and whoever else was in a cashmere jumper nearby (laughs) (laughs) well it's interesting you're talking about the cashmere jumper because (laughs) that is like I think that stands in for a lot more about this book that it's paying so much attention to the body, but it's also paying so much attention to just objects and the world and the sensuality of things like jumpers mm-hmm, <laughs> and mm-hmm. watches and pebbles and roses. And when the protagonist is thinking about Mrs. S, they're often thinking about these like little details that are so specific and so specific to their desire. And I just wonder it made me go back to the poetry, the idea of you being a poet too, of this just utter focus and attention on the world. And I wonder if you could talk about that. Like what's, what's your relationship to things and (laughs) objects and how you think about them in terms of desire as well? Yeah. What is my relationship to things? (laughs) What a question. (laughs) No, it's good. It's a really good question. I like having to think this stuff through. I think um, when I think about things that immediately makes me think about detail and how crucial detail is to the book like this kind of lasered in detail this spotlighting on certain things like the movement of a hand like gesture it's so funny because in it's such a specific archiving of things as well I think it must have something to do with that kind of queer looking that I was talking about before this kind of like constant taking in of surroundings and some of that is very pleasurable and some of that is also about for me a lot of it is about beauty it's about aesthetics I guess I, I think a lot of what is noticed in the book is also beautiful, which maybe sounds like a very obvious thing to say, but I think moving away from like in inverted commas idea of beauty into other opportunities of beauty is really interesting to me. And I think I find that very interesting as a poet as well. And it's funny because in the book, I don't really like the detail that I like is a detail that exists not outside of time, but again, in that kind of timeless sense. But on the line in the poem, I have loads of contemporary detail in, so... I'll write about the Kylie Minogue song or like George Michael's outfit. And in the novel, I I find it really hard to do that. I I wonder if that's because when it comes to my relationship to things, the novel can sometimes feel like an answer. And oh my God, this sounds so pretentious, but I'm I'm in the middle of saying it now. The poem, (laughs) the novel feels like an answer and the poem kind of feels more like a question. So it's like, you don't have to round things up. You don't have to have a conclusion you can walk away from it doesn't have to be not that it has to be unfinished I think that's the wrong word for it but it just it goes on thinking I think but you know as you're talking about that in a novel the things that you bring into the novelistic world they require a context right which mm. can give them a different weight from when they're called into a poem 
where they are able, if the poet chooses to exist, free from context. Yeah, actually, I suppose that's true, or at least the context is more forgiving sometimes in the poem. Like I think each poem does end up generating its own context, but maybe it's, yeah, I think maybe the movement is different. And it's funny noticing my habits in terms of writing, which is the only thing I really have to go off when I think about how I write poetry and how I write prose. And one of my main habits that I've noticed since talking through the book is that I won't put the contemporary, like I won't give an era, I won't give a year, I won't, I'll be very vague in the novel, but in the poem I'll be like, no, this song is Padam Padam by Kylie Minogue and I'm going to write about <laughs> it. So it's, it's, it's funny, I must feel like I'm able to yeah, like I don't know what that is about. I maybe like units of time somehow. Sometimes I think about the poem as a unit of time in a way that feels more permissible than the novel. But of course, the novel can be a unit of time too. I think sometimes it just feels a bit enormous, like a really big bit of time. And I don't yeah. always know how to commit to that. Yeah. Yeah. One final question for you. Most of this novel is set during a heat wave. And I just wanted to <laughs> ask you, because it feels, I mean, it's an erotic novel. And, I, and part of me thinks the kind of heat of the novel contributes to that eroticism. And I wonder if you felt the same. What what attracted you to, or why did you want to set it during a heat wave? Yeah, for the same reason. That I, I think it, it, I was, it, there's a bit of a debt to kind of lesbian pulp fiction and other kind of horny novels that came before that also are set in like a heat wave. Not that a novel can't be horny, and not that it can't be horny in winter. Of course, winter can also be horny. It's not only for summer. But <laughs> I think I just had to have so many things pressing down, bearing down on the book. And like heat is one of those things that it's funny because the protagonist has a complicated relationship to heat in that way because it requires a body to come out into the open, which isn't necessarily what they want for themselves. And I think. I can't remember what line it is I have in the book. It's funny because I forget whether it's poetry is embarrassing or summer is embarrassing. And I think it's summer, summer is embarrassing. embarrassing. Yeah, I wrote yeah. that down. Summer is embarrassing. I really, it <laughs> yeah. was, I, it like landed very powerfully. <laughs> yeah. It, it's quite a vulnerable time for bodies, which I don't know if that deviates from the idea of the erotic or if it goes hand in hand with, probably hand in hand with. But the, yeah, the, I think that acute sense of self that comes through in summer, especially when you're a body that's still, being decided I think was really important to the text and summer again it was something that I needed it's so funny this idea of author's needs I, I'm newly obsessed with but I needed it to be summer to be able to write into these things that interested me or these things that felt important to who the protagonist was and because I was so limited and because of the the novel style there were only so many ways you could let the reader know about who these characters were so I had to find these inroads that allowed these characters to be to show who they were and all of that had to be through kind of action, temperature, setting, place. Like, you know, I had to move through that before I could kind of have any kind of inner monologues or, you know, I don't know, other novelistic tropes that might be another way of showing who a character is or mm-hmm. letting a reader into a character. And Summer was one way of letting, of showing who the protagonist was, you know, their relationship to Summer, their relationship to that season. Mm-hmm. And it also allowed me to let them change with, no, that sounds terrible. I don't mean that. I was going to say let them change with the landscape, but I don't actually know what that means. I was going to say <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think what you're getting at is one is there's a very beautiful transformation that takes place. We'll take that in yes. this novel <laughs> yeah, about perfect. the protagonist's relationship with their body. And maybe yeah. that's echoed a bit yes. in, in terms of the weather. Yeah. 
that's perfect. <laughs> Thank you for fixing that for me. That's what you need. You just need you need some other people to come in and post rationalize everything for you. That's like <laughs> Oh my god, I would love that. I would love that for the rest of my life, please. Just me going blah blah blah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Patrick, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you so so much for having me. It's been a joy. The book is called Mrs. S. It's in all good bookshops. Octavia and I are back here to talk about desire, a topic we love, a topic we have visited before on the show in different guises. We talked to Catherine Angel about her book, Tomorrow Sex Will Be Good Again, and discussed vulnerability, which of course is a big part of desire. We also talked to Chris Krause, who came on to talk about her book, I Love Dick, and we talked about abstract romanticism, which was another way of talking about desire. (laughs) We objectify the things and the people we love in certain ways. We abstract them. But this feels like a subject worth revisiting, especially after reading Kay's novel, which pulsates with desire. So I guess I'll start with the question, Octavia. What do you look for in writing about desire? It's really about finding the right balance between the relatable and the specifics. There's a certain intensity and demanding energy in the experience of desire that I think is relatable across the board, no matter who you are, what turns you on. It's pretty universal. And not just in relation to sex, it can also be in in relation to ambition and into other things that we want. Hunger, thirst in a literal sense, not just in a kind of sexy sense. But I think then what brings it alive in writing is when that generalized sort of propulsion is mapped onto particular characters and their very specific desires, which I think is something Kay does so brilliantly in Mrs. S, as we were talking about in the chat, the attention to detail, details of the body, but also objects and things and that kind of aliveness to every single detail that happens when a body is lit up with desire. So I also think for novelists, exploring a character's desire is a really interesting way of exploring who they actually are, you know, like what are their deepest longings? What are their contradictions? Maybe even their self-deceptions, right? What are the things they want that maybe go against the idea they have of themselves and what they Mm. should want? And also it's not just a lens through which you can understand more about a person, You can also understand more about the world they live in and their context when you look at desire and whether those desires are interrupted by social norms or contexts that um, prohibit them. So you can look at whether a character lives freely within themselves or not, but you can also look at whether a character lives freely within their context or not, right? And I think using desire as a lens through which to look at society can be an intensely political choice, right? You can choose to give space to desires that go against the norm. But yeah, I think my favorite writing about it basically has all of that going on within it, not necessarily in a heavy way, but just that understands that our desires are shaped by, or at least exist in relation to everything that we absorb about the world around us, particularly in those incredibly formative years of teenage sexual awakening. Mm -hmm. And I think that some of the best writing about desire finds a way to include a relationship between the personal and the structural. You mentioned Chris Krause's I Love Dick, which I think is such a great example of this. And also it does it with a lot of humor, right? And Catherine Angel's writing is always dealing with these kinds of questions as well. So I guess ultimately, like, good writing about desire speaks to my own desire in some way, whether that's just that 
it makes me curious to read on and, and replicates in me some of the drive that's being experienced by the character literally on the page, or whether I recognize my own experience of longing and yearning replicated in a character. You know, that's, I think that's what I'm looking for, basically. What about you? Yeah, I totally agree about all of those things, in fact, and especially about the specificity. I love when writing on desire captures this truth that our desires are so specific. There are universalized things about them, but we notice the strangest thing in the people that we desire and we're turned on by the strangest things. That's what I think Kate is so well in their novel, which is the the way that a, a character puts her finger on a table is intensely erotic. And writing that does that, I think, is really embodies desire and how we experience it. When I'm reading about desire, I really want to be immersed in the feeling of what it's like, because it is such an embodied experience. So desire as an intellectual exercise isn't really what I'm looking for. I want to be plunged inside the character's experience of yearning, because desire is consuming. And I want writing that gives me that feeling of that overwhelming experience of desire. And then finally, one of the interesting things about desire is that it's always about absence in addition to being about presence. So desire requires distance. It's always something that you're yearning for. It's always something that you're wanting. And it's always in some ways a construction and a fantasy. And I like writing about desire that acknowledges and plays with this. Like, how is the person or thing we desire different from reality? How is the object of what we desire an object? And how does it become subject? And what's the distance between those two things? So I think the best writing on desire, and Chris Krauss does that really well. Who is Dick? And I love Dick. <laughs> so <laughs> Dick is a construction. Dick doesn't need to be Dick. Dick is any Dick. Dick could be any Dick. Exactly. Yeah, and the aubergine emoji. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's the kind of writing I like. But speaking of that, how do you see desire in relation to ideas like love and romance or sex? Because they're slightly different, aren't they? Does the state of desire itself make good fiction or do you need those other elements in the mix? It's such a good question. I think the state of desire is enough if it's if it's rendered well, right? Because in a way, I think writing is the perfect medium to explore it because reading is all desire. Even just the most basic level, you need to have a desire to keep reading, to keep turning the page in a book. So I think that there is this erotics in the process of reading that writers forget at their peril, actually. Um, and that's a lot of questions about pleasure. And I thought it was so interesting what Kay was saying about how important it was to them that they were experiencing pleasure in the writing. And that's where things started. I think if a writer is trying to write about desire and is not experiencing pleasure in the desire, it's probably not very pleasurable for the reader either. And there's something there that feels very important. But I think also writing that goes beyond the state of desire in a sexual and love potentially context and takes it into kind of the culture, I think is very interesting. So I'm thinking of books like I'm a Fan by Sheena Patel and Luster by Raven Leilani, both authors who've been on the show before, and both novels, which are pretty different, but they what they have in common is they look at how our romantic or sexual desires are impossible to disentangle from the drives of things like capitalism, class, status, race, privilege, all of these things that kind of our identities are forged in the fire within, if that makes sense. Yeah. And actually thinking about I'm a Fan, that is a novel in terms of this question about whether you need the consummation of desire 
I'm a fan. It's a novel in some ways just about desire. It's about wanting something and interrogating that want and not really ever getting it. Or I don't know. I think that novel is so good at keeping you in a state of dissatisfaction and feeling desire. But also, as you say, it becomes this much larger critique of the society in which we live. So yeah, I do think you can write it just about desire. Although I think a lot of my favorite novels about desire are also mixing in ideas about sex or or showing sex, showing love, showing romance, showing how our ideas are sometimes disrupted about those various states of being. And as you were saying, desire is interesting because it doesn't always align with who we think we should be or the kind of person we want to be. We can't always control our desires or politicize them, in fact. And a lot of the best fiction is interested in the contradictory ways that humans exist in the world. So I do think that most fiction is about desire, even if it's not explicitly sexual. And that desire is a lens through which to explore how people relate to themselves and also the world. Mm, Definitely. So do you think that there is adequate space for desire that isn't male and hetero in our literature? And what portraits most excite you that break that mold? Obviously, there isn't. (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely getting better. And also, you know, as Kay mentioned, there's like this whole kind of world of butch writing that just hasn't hit the mainstream. So I think there is more writing out there that is um, exploring desires that aren't the normative ones that normative readers haven't received yet. But I do think that there is a crossover happening now, which is so important. Um, I also think it's just very important to say that obviously in the history of literature, so many pages have been given over to the exploration of heterosexual masculine desire. And often it's very fucked up. Like there are a lot of books that women's bodies are portrayed as vessels to be filled by the desires of men and also to suffer essentially in all kinds of horrendous ways. And then of course, there's the classic of the kind of female object desire who lacks agency completely and all of this kind of stuff, which is, I think it's easy to forget how normal that is for readers to experience as the blueprint for the desiring subject. Obviously it's changing. It's been changing for a while, but I think that actually for people whose sexuality does fit the normative mold of heterosexual, I think it's easy for them to underestimate the power of writing that normalizes any desire that's been deemed outside of the acceptable, whether that's queer desire or kink, or even desire in the context of characters who are fat or disabled, bodies that are like by the mainstream not deemed to be bodies we should see being sexual or we should allow to experience pleasure or the pleasure of sexuality. We still live in a society that is very intensely definite about the fact that there are some kinds of people and some kinds of bodies for whom it is acceptable to be desired or to feel desire, even desirable that they do both experience and receive desire, and that there are plenty of other people and bodies who don't deserve this or for whom it is wrong to feel these things. And I just think this is where I can get a bit I guess, intense about it, but like, this is where the power of literature can really step up and show that there are these places where desire can be a universal thing that bonds us together with people who maybe are very different from us or for whom desire manifests in different ways, but we can recognize the force that charges it. So I'm also thinking of of books like Milk Fed by Melissa Broder, which I've talked about a few times on the show, which is about appetite and it's about desire for food and faith, actually, as well as queer sex and as well as being, there's a character who's a fat woman 
woman who has this like wonderfully enlivening appetite for sex and sensuality and Broda gives her full reign and and it's electrifying because it's so unusual in the mainstream. So I think that's a book that's about the freedom you can find in sating your desire, maybe even against what the sort of dominant story is telling you. And then of course, I can't not mention Andrea Lawler's Paul Takes the Form of a Mortal Girl, which I talk about a lot, but it's about desire as a force in itself. It's also about desire for love and sex as something that can have its own narrative propulsion. And again, like very much looks at the, the idea of desire as a force that is a self making force that can help you figure out who you are. And whether that's someone who's gender fluid or gender queer or not, it's something that can help you build your world, build the world for yourself. There is something that makes me a bit uneasy though. And that's the fact that when people talk about desire, they often cordon off female desire. And I don't know, do, do you get why? Yeah, I know what you mean. And I agree, actually. It, it's so interesting because when I was researching the show, I found a lot of pieces and listicles about the idea of female desire, especially in the wake of that book, Three Women by Lisa Tadeo, which was a book that proclaimed itself to be about female desire. And there was a sense in these pieces that we needed a major corrective because all we were reading were these perspectives of men and how they thought about women. And actually, women's desire is really interesting and people are hungry for these explorations, which I think is all like true. It's it's what you were saying just then, that there needs to be more space for different kinds of desire that aren't male and hetero. But I think this category just always ends up in the territory of gender essentialism, right. which is really dangerous. So if men's gaze or sexuality is like this, then women's gaze is like this. And actually, when you do that, you end up actually replicating a lot of the ideas about desire and gaze and just like moving them into a new big category of what certain people feel. It makes it uninventive. Totally. And it, it gets into a lot of the same things we were talking about when it comes to sad girl lit. Yes, it's like, exactly. It's just like putting everything in a box and assuming everyone thinks the same way and just destroying nuance. Yeah, completely. And what we really need are as many varied nuanced representations of desire as is true to life, which is essentially infinite. There are things that we all have in common. There are certain sexual responses or drives that will be familiar across the board, but the way they manifest in each of us is different. The things, the objects we project them onto are different. And the thing that really troubled me about that book, Three Women by Lisa Tadeo, is that, as you say, like at one point she even writes that, that the book stands for what the whole of what longing in America looks like. And it was a book about three white, straight women, <laughs> which is just uh, deeply problematic because it's actually a book about what desire looks like for three specific individuals. And that is interesting, right? But it was the fact that then it was widened out to speak for an entire gender category that I think is the problem with it, basically. So yeah, I have a lot more to say about this and we're running out of time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I completely agree to you that it's less about writing in opposition to literature of the past, but about expanding the boundaries of what individual desire can be in all directions and in all forms. Um, yeah, yeah. So on that note, what expanding work of literature do you recommend in relation to desire? I'm going back to the past, actually, but it's A Lover's Discourse by Roland Barthes, because I think nothing I've read 
anatomizes desire in this way. And I think it's a very interesting bringing together of an intellectual approach to desire, but also actually creating vignettes that show us what it's like to experience it from inside the body and from inside the spirit and the soul as well. So it breaks it down and thinks incredibly deeply about all of these different aspects of desire, the different position you find yourself in relation to the desired person, or the desired object, the feeling of longing, the feeling of heartbreak. It takes you through the whole thing almost like an encyclopedia. And I think what he's doing in it is desperately trying to capture in words and pin down this feeling that actually it can be really difficult to articulate or fully understand because it is such a deeply felt thing. And as we said before, it's not something that you really approach with the intellect. So I really respect his attempt to, to capture it with the intellect. So strong recommendation for good old Roland. <laughs> What's yours? Mine is A Simple Passion by Annie Erno, which we've both mentioned on the show, but this is a very short work of autofiction about an affair that the narrator has with a married man. I love a lot of things about this book, but in relation to desire, I love that it's not really about the man at all. It's about the feeling of passion and obsession that he evokes in the narrator, especially when he isn't there. And it's it's more about the times when he isn't there and she's waiting by the phone than when they're having this affair. And I think Arnaud really understands that desire is as much about ourselves and our own feelings as it is about the other person or object who is in some ways interchangeable. Or they're not interchangeable, but they're we construct them ourselves. Yeah, and actually I think often they can be interchangeable and that's something people don't like to be reminded of. Yes. Is <laughs> <laughs> the truth. So true. Okay, we are back here with Kay Patrick to give our monthly book recommendations. Octavia, would you like to start? With absolute pleasure. So this is a book I read in the summer and I haven't been able to stop thinking about. It's called Intimacies by Katie Kitamura and it was published a few years ago, I think. Ostensibly, it's about an interpreter who moves to The Hague. She's on the run from her life in New York. It's a little bit uncertain what she's running from at the beginning. And when she arrives in The Hague, she gets tangled up in a series of really intense situations. So she's there for a job at the International Court, which is basically a fictional version of the International Criminal Court. So that's intense situation, number one. She very quickly gets into a relationship with a married guy, and he promises his relationship is ending, but yada, 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 is it really classic sort of setup. And then this really momentary thing happens where there's a mugging outside her friend's apartment. And by this point, you start to realize that she's actually drawn to these intense situations. As much as they come to her, she's obviously seeking them out as well. And after this mugging happens, she gets really drawn into the story and she gets pretty obsessed with the victim. And so Kitamura is slowly building this really tight, feeling of threat. And it starts to read like a mystery, even though it's not really, but it has the pacing of a mystery novel. So I found myself just completely, totally absorbed. Like I, I absolutely lost my surroundings and I was just in the book, which is such a wonderful way to read. And I was fascinated by it because the style is very clear, very direct, careful, like almost clinical sometimes. But she builds this total confusion with it. So you end up 
as confused as the protagonist about why she's finding herself in these situations, basically. And eventually she ends up interpreting for this president of an unnamed African state and he's on trial for war crimes. And at that point in the book, it gets very technical about the process of um, simultaneous interpretation and really thinks very deeply and carefully about language and about the intimacy of language and the intimacy of being the representative of another human being, right? You're meant to be like a an impartial vessel as an interpreter in that kind of situation. But when what you're being filled with is so sort of complicated, what does that do to a person's personality? And it's such an interesting question. And basically at the end, I, I won't spoil it, but I was just left thinking, God, it's such an intelligent reflection on intimacy, hence the title, but like the different kinds of intimacy that we might find ourselves in. And, and so there's the intimacy of sex and desire. There's the intimacy of language. There's the intimacy of translation, but then also actually the intimacy of reading. It's one of those books I want to go back to and take it apart and just figure out how she did it. <laughs> it's mm. so fascinating mm. to me. But yes, get it. It's out there. Barack Obama loved it. If that's a I love that book actually. Did well. you? Oh, brilliant. Yeah, I love that book. I also read it in the summer and I had the same experience where I was just completely absorbed it's by so it. It's so absorbing, isn't it? Mm, it's very clean. It's a very like clean yeah. text as well. And it's a big plot for a book that it's a huge plot for a book that when you're reading it feels so utterly absorbing there's yeah, a lot going yeah, on yeah. I, and as a writer I'm like I, don't, I wouldn't know how to have such command over plot and narrative arc in that same way yeah it's very tense okay I have to read it okay what is your recommendation my recommendation is maybe a very obvious one but it's a book that I've been I maybe reread three times this year which is what I do when I'm in the depths of a new project it's Housekeeping by Marilyn mm. Robinson uh, one of my favorite ever novels I mean I'm biased at the moment because I've honestly on my fourth rereading of it right now and I can do that with a book if I love it. I think the last book I did that with was The Shipping News by Annie Pruel. This book, if you haven't read it, is such a must read. I think it came out in 1980, although you wouldn't know when it came out, which is something that I'm quite addicted to in novels at the moment, is that idea that it will find its place whenever it's being read. And it follows, how to explain it? It, it follows a story of two sisters, really, and their life in a town called Fingerbone. They are left in the care of their aunt. And it's just about three people trying to make sense of place, I think, is what I'm so drawn to in the text. It also has this amazing, clarifying ability to get to the heart of really big themes, which I guess is like Marilyn Robinson's like legacy. She is able to talk about huge things like religion and beauty, love, death, and in a way that is immediately understood, but also feels very specific and unique to the novel itself, which is something that I get very jealous of. <laughs> um, she's able to create an archive for her characters that feels so unique and well held. And she can do temperature in a book like nobody else I know. You can feel the town is set on this lake and it has a constant presence. I think it's mentioned almost every other page. And you can feel, touch, sense it in yourself after a certain amount of time of reading. But yeah, it's a remarkable novel. And if you haven't read it, you really should. I really second that. It's a tour de force, isn't it? And it, yeah. it's, I think about things when I think about that novel. Um, there's mm. a particular passage about how things hold meaning yeah. and how they survive people that like lives in my head <laughs> and, and recurs yeah. and recurs for me that she just has captured something so perfectly. I know the exact section you're talking about, yeah. And and also just the way she talks about religion feels so rare. Yeah. It feels so her grasp of spirituality, it feels unique, especially in the current 
landscape of literature. And I feel like I go to her for that too. So my recommendation this month is the novel The Bee Sting by Paul Murray, which I just finished listening to on audio. It was uh, a lot of hours of audio. It's a long book, but it never (laughs) felt long, which is always, I think, one of the greatest magic tricks that novelists can pull off, like something Mm. that actually you, you get excited that it's so long because you want to be in the story. And that's certainly how I felt when I was listening to this novel. And what a novel. Oh my God. It's the story of the Barnes family. They live in a small town in contemporary post-crash Ireland. The father, Dickie, runs this car business that he's inherited from his father. It, It was very successful. It's now pretty much failing. And all the members of the family, his wife, Imelda, his daughter, Cass, who's about to go to university, his son, PJ, who's a little bit more naive, sort of in that transition period between being a child and more of a kind of adult, are grappling with this change of circumstances. And the novel is told from the perspective of all four members of the family. And I loved that it used this technique to show different ideas and events from different perspectives. So as you read, your idea of history, motivation, character is always shifting as you read a new perspective on it. And you're just constantly surprised by what has happened and how it happened and how it might not have happened that you thought it happened. And it's so rooted in character and relationships. And that is, that's really the the grounding force, but it's tackling huge themes like the, the crash in Ireland and the kind of Celtic tiger and how the nation was forced to re-envisage itself, the way money shapes and warps people, the climate crisis, the lives we think we should lead versus the lives we want to, the lives we imagine ourselves having versus the ones that we have. And I also loved that it was not quite realism. It's a novel that really engages with Irish mythology and folklore. And there's a real doom and tragedy that pervades the story that has a kind of magical quality to it, but it feels like it works in the balance and you never quite know where you're standing in terms of that magic. So I was just gripped from the beginning to the end. And the audiobook, which is narrated by different actors for different perspective, is just incredibly done and an absolute delight. Yeah, this is one of my favorite novels I've read in a while and I'd really recommend it. I cannot wait to read it. I've had so so many friends raving about it. I'm halfway through it at the moment. Oh, oh you? what do you think? Yeah. Uh, you're not, oh, you're not oh. sure? You're not sure? I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but I have to. It's been, obviously, it's like a difficult time to start reading it because it's been so, I like, hyped at the moment. And sometimes I can be like a brat about that. Same, same, same. I'll get past myself. But I, I'm reading it and I can't stop reading it. So, And like, again, 600 pages. Oof, I like, I wouldn't know how to yeah. begin. I have some criticisms that we could discuss when you're done because I def- there were definitely <laughs> it's imperfect in a lot of ways and there were things that annoyed me about it and things that mm. I didn't think quite worked but I don't know I just I just loved reading it so much that I forgave it those things yeah it's fun it's fun to read I'm interested to see how it ends I feel like that's going to hold it all in the end yeah for me. the ending is yeah I won't say more <laughs> my god you tease That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Kay Patrick and to Daphne Carnesis and George Miaris for editing. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on ncs.live. You can check us out on Twitter and we are also on Instagram. You can as well get in touch with us on email, litfriction at gmail.com. We check it occasionally. If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes our day and it also helps us reach new listeners. 
We'll be back soon with another mini-sode. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. <laughs>